Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. It's great to be here, and uh, it's great to be preaching on the book of Philippians. And we are just in a little mini-series looking at the book of Philippians. Ange kicked it off brilliantly last week, looking at chapter 1, and uh, I'm picking up the second chapter today. And if you uh, don't know about the book of Philippians or you missed last week, I would encourage you to check out Ange's talk. It was absolutely brilliant. But this was a letter that was written probably around AD 62. It's hard to know exactly what year, but from the Apostle Paul to a church in a place called Philippi that he had founded around 12 years previously. And as we saw last week, Paul cares enormously about this church. He loves this church. And it was a church that started in an unusual way. It's certainly not a way that we have tended to start churches. Like Paul goes to this Roman colony and there's no church. He doesn't know anyone. He starts talking about Jesus. And the first couple of people who come to faith are not the people you might expect. There's a wealthy businesswoman. There's a slave woman who has been horribly abused. And then there is a prison, a prison warden who first encounters Paul whilst beating him with rods and putting him in chains. Like not your normal church planting strategy is certainly not the way we've done it here at Christchurch London, but this is an amazing start to what becomes an incredible church that is so precious to Paul. And so he is writing to this church, but he's actually writing from a prison cell. We think probably in Rome around AD 62. And He is in prison because of his preaching, because he has preached the good news, which kind of doesn't sound like the sort of reason you'd be sent to jail. Like, why would you be sent to jail for preaching good news? Well, in order to understand that, we need to know why Paul's good news was so challenging to the authorities. And so I just want to unpack it a little bit. I'll give you a bit of context. We'll look at what he says in this passage. And I want to draw a contrast between the city and the Savior to help us understand why Paul is in this situation. So a bit of background. Philippi was established in 356 BC by Philip II, king of Macedonia, who came in, took it over, and then named it after himself, hence Philippi, as you do. <laughs> so you just shrug. Yeah, cool, of course. Yeah, so he comes in and he takes over this city. He names it after himself. But then he just channels all his effort into getting his own wealth, his own glory. So this city was between two mountains where there were gold and silver reserves. And so what he did was he came in, he enslaved all the people, and he put them to work getting the gold and silver out from the ground. So he became incredibly wealthy. It was a wealthy city. It was also a key rite of passage to get through the ancient world on the trade route. So he now owned that trade route, and he could control so much wealth that was flowing through his city. But wealth couldn't buy Philip popularity. And he was assassinated in 336 BC, and Philippi went to his son, who you will have heard of, Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great took this wealth of his father, and he used it to amass armies to go and basically take over as much of the world as he possibly could, until he died at the age of 32. And at that point, his kingdom basically started to fall apart. Now, it's hard to know exactly what happened to Philippi beyond that. There is more detail we could look at, but I'm I'm tight for time, so I'm going very fast. (laughs) But we basically don't know a lot until a few centuries later. By the time of Paul, we know that Philippi had become a Roman colony. That is, it was ruled over as part of the Roman Empire, and everyone who lived there had to live by the rule of Rome, pledging allegiance to Caesar Augustus. 
Now, Caesar Augustus uh, was the son of Julius Caesar. And in 44 BC, Julius Caesar had died and there was a star in the sky. And people sort of thought, oh, maybe this is Julius Caesar ascending to the heavens. And so rumor became uh, just, just widespread that he had actually become a god on his death. And so in 44 BC, the Senate declared Julius Caesar is divine. He is God, which made Caesar the son of God. And so the title, Son of God, started to be used by him. He was known as the Son of God or the Divine King of Salvation. And this was really the beginning of what was known as emperor worship. Throughout the Roman Empire, people who lived in colonies like Philippi would need to declare that Caesar was the Divine King of Salvation. And the gospel, the good news of Rome, was that under him, peace, salvation would spread to the whole world. Their peace was what was known as Pax Romana, Roman peace, which sounds great. I mean, who doesn't want a bit of peace, right? But Roman peace wasn't actually the absence of conflict. Roman peace was won by violently crushing anyone who stood in the way of Caesar Augustus. And so these were bloodthirsty times. And in colonies like Philippi, everyone would celebrate, because they would have to, a uh, threat of violence, they would celebrate this divine king of salvation, this son of God, Caesar. And they would pledge allegiance to him and to his gospel by saying these words, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. And they would literally bow the knee and say that phrase. You still with me? Great. Now, Philippian society was an incredibly segregated society. As I said, it was very, very wealthy. But as is often the case, where there is great wealth, there is also great wealth disparity. And society essentially fell into two categories, which became six categories and even more categories. So the top category was what was known as the honestiores, the um, honorable ones. And this was 2% of Philippian society. The other 98% was the humiliores, the dishonorable ones. And the whole of society was broken down into these six different categories, ranging from the most valuable, the most uh, prestigious, right down to the lowest of the low. At the top, you had the Senate, which was 600 men. They were the ruling elite. They were the absolute highest of the high in Philippian society. Beneath that, you have the equestrians, who were those who provided horses for people to ride. Now, I know it's a crazy society where a measure of your status is your mode of transport. We couldn't imagine something like that in our day, but that's how it was here. Like the equestrians were the second highest in society. 600 above them, that's it. Beneath them, you had the Decurians. And the Decurians were wealthy middle-class citizens who were often involved in local politics and public life. And these top three tiers comprised 2% of Philippian society. The other 98% were the dishonorable ones. You had Roman citizens. Now, these guys, they had rights and they had privileges. Um, they had to have fair trials. They weren't to be mistreated. They had all sorts of privileges. Uh, beneath them, you had the free men who still, like, they had an okay quality of life. They had certain privileges, but there were some things that they missed out on that other Roman citizens did get. And at the very bottom, you had the slaves. They were the lowest of the low. In fact, they were known as personus mediocrimus a mediocre person, an absolute nobody. If you were a slave, you were at the bottom rung of society and you would not have any rights to a fair trial. Uh, you, you would be imprisoned or beaten uh, without any trial at all. And actually, there were certain forms of punishment and execution that only slaves would suffer. For example, crucifixion was considered such a barbaric form of execution, it wasn't even considered polite to talk about it with the people in the top three or even four tiers. Only the slaves would experience crucifixion because it was that barbaric, it was kept for the lowest of the low. 
In this world, like being a slave was absolutely the worst. The ancient historian Tacitus, when he wanted to mock or, or criticize someone, his insult of choice was, you have the mind of a slave. Because he thought that these people were almost not even worthy to be considered humans. They were the absolute lowest of the low. And in Philippi, all your sense of worth and value was tied up with where you were on this social scale. And the whole of your life, if you were down the bottom, was oriented towards trying your best to climb up the social scale so you could get more rights and privileges and value and honour. And if you were at the top, you would spend your life looking down at those beneath you, desperately hoping that they wouldn't catch up with you and fearing that you might fall a rung on this ladder. In a society like this, humility was not something to be aspired to. I mean, it, it was a curse to be humble, to be lowered down the social order. You would never aspire to be humble in this world. And within this status-obsessed world, and incidentally, Philippi was the worst of the Roman Empire. It was often said that there was no more status-obsessed city than Philippi in the whole of the ancient world. In this kind of world, there were various things that were like status symbols that marked out to everyone else where you were on this pecking order. In fact, I should say, it went even further than just six uh, of these categories. Within the Senate, there were five different categories of like that honour honorable place. So 600 men divided into five categories. And even there, they talked about the race for honor, trying to get to the very top, like the top of the top category. And even within slaves, there were also categories of honor. So tombstones have been found in Philippi and other places where it said what category of slave you were. So this whole thing just ran through the whole of society. And symbols that marked out where you were included your title, so the name that you had gave a sense of your status. And the more things you could put your name on, told everyone else, oh, this person is powerful because that thing is named after him. Hence, Philip comes in and he's like, I'm changing this thing to Philippi. So everyone knows I and the boss around here. Titles were important status symbols. Your position, literally where you sat in a room like this, would communicate to everyone else how powerful you were. Theatres were divided up so the slaves would sit somewhere. At the, I'm so sorry if you're at the back, but like, it's not the case here, to be clear. Like, slaves would sit at the back and certain people of honour would sit here. So everyone else could look down and go, well, we know who's got the power and privilege in this room. The same at dinner parties. If you, uh, yeah, it's you, Kenny, and you look pretty happy with it. <laughs> Just wait for the rest of the sermon. So <laughs> a, a, a dinner party, the proximity that you had to the person who was hosting the party would communicate to everyone else how powerful you were. If you sat on their right or your left, they, they, people would know this was probably in your honour and you were the most precious, most prized, most privileged person in the room. Your appearance would communicate where you were in the social order. Only the top tiers were allowed to wear togas. Apparently that was a desirable thing. Like your clothing, you couldn't dress outside of your class, outside of your category. So your clothing would clearly show people where you were in this social structure. And it's to this city, a city obsessed with the kind of quest for honour, the quest for value, this wealthy status obsessed place that Paul writes his letter to the Philippians. And he writes this good news, which is not, good news if you think like this. Because the reason Paul got thrown into jail was because his message skewered the very heart of their value system. He preaches about the Saviour, about Jesus Christ. And from verse 5 onwards, he describes Jesus. And actually, scholars say that Paul probably didn't write these verses. Rather, what he's done is he's taken like a popular hymn of the day, probably one they sung at Philippi, and put it in to say, hey, this is what you guys sing, right? 
And he, it, this hymn, this song, celebrates who Jesus is. It says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here begins the hymn. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Let's just pause there for a second. Paul says that Jesus was in very nature God. In a world where your title meant everything and the highest you could get to was like tier one of the Senate. God is off the charts. The only person who would claim anything close to that is Caesar who was the son of God, the divine king. Actually, Julius Caesar only became God on his death. And only then, because the Senate said, okay, we think you're God, and signed a bit of paper to say that. Jesus wasn't declared God by anyone else. He was in very nature, in his form, in his essence, in his DNA, as it were. He was God. No one else could claim that. But although Jesus had full rights to everything that godness entails, we're told that he didn't use that to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He walked all the way down the social scale to the very bottom, the personas mediocrimus, the nobodies. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself, taking on the nature of a servant. Two things. One, that word servant is doulos, the Greek word doulos. It actually means slave. And Jesus didn't just do slave things. He took on the nature of a slave. So in a world where people like Tacitus would mock people and say, you've got the mind of a slave, Jesus voluntarily took on the nature of a slave, the lowest of the low. He humbled himself. Jesus wasn't humbled by anyone else. He did this out of choice. He walked all the way down the ladder to the lowest point. He made himself nothing, it says. Some translations say he emptied himself. This is a really complex idea, and it's one that we don't have time to nail in the next two seconds. But essentially, it says that Jesus limited himself in some way, voluntarily. He put aside something of his, his godness, the privilege of godness. He chose not to make use of his omnipotence, his omniscience. To be clear, when he came to earth, he didn't stop being God. He remained God and man but he chose not to use the privilege of his divine status. And so he didn't consider it something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing. You know, Jesus entered fully into our experience. He didn't rely on his omniscience so that he would just know everything. He entered into our experience of not knowing everything, of having doubts and fears and questions and concerns so he could relate to us. He didn't use his omnipotence at any given moment all the time. Rather, he laid it aside so he could enter into our experience of powerlessness. I certainly know that I am not omniscient or omnipotent. And so it strikes me as incredibly comforting that at the heart of the Christian message, we don't have a guy like Caesar who's like, I want to use all my wealth and all my power to stay as different and distant from you as possible. Rather, we have a God who says, I'm going to become exactly like you. And not only like you at the top tiers of society or even the middle, but the lowest of the low. Jesus made himself nothing, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man in a world where appearance told everyone where you were on the social structure. What appearance did Jesus take? He dressed outside his class. He looked like us, the lowest of the low. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Only people in the lowest categories of society thought of their lives in terms of obedience. That God will become obedient to anything is shocking. 
That he would become obedient to death is kind of crazy. But that he would become obedient to death on a cross, a slave death that even a Roman citizen wouldn't have to face is incredibly shocking. And you've got to ask, why would he do that? Why would he voluntarily do that? And the answer, I think, is this. Because Jesus knew that this world is in a mess. It lacks peace. It needs intervention. And Paul knew and Jesus knew that salvation would not come by the way of Rome, by a man who crushes enemies. Violence will never lead to salvation. Violence will never lead to lasting peace. We see that in our world today. Rather, Paul and Jesus say there is a different way. The true gospel, the true good news, the true message of salvation is to do with self-giving love. Jesus immersed himself into our experience fully, taking upon himself our fears and our doubts and our shame and our guilt and our brokenness and our powerlessness. He immersed himself in it fully so that he could identify with us. And at the cross, he identified with us at our worst. The greatest act of injustice was done where all the might of the power and gospel of Rome was directed at him and he was crushed on our behalf. And Paul says this is good news because it skewers the value system of Rome. And if you believe in Jesus, you get united with him such that his death becomes our death and his life becomes our life. Because the gospel story doesn't stop there. Jesus didn't remain dead. Rather, as Paul says, therefore, because of Jesus' self-giving love, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And again, Paul is deliberately skewering the value system of Rome and of Philippi. Because in a city where the place you sat at a dinner table told everyone else around that this guy is an honourable person, Jesus sits where? At the right hand of the Father. In a world where the title you bore told everyone how powerful you are, Jesus is given the name above every name, including that of Caesar. And in a world where you were expected to bow the knee to the most honourable man in your society, Caesar, and declare Caesar is Lord and he is the divine king of salvation, Paul says, no, one day every knee will bow to Jesus, the God who became a slave, who walked all the way down the ladder so that everyone mocked him, everyone discounted him, but God raised him up. One day every knee will bow not to Caesar, but to him and declare that he is Lord. Can you see why Paul got put in prison? Because this message just skewers the heart of the whole Roman way of thinking. But it's not, I would put it to you, just a challenge for Philippians and for Romans in general. It's a challenge for all of us. Because Paul says, like, if you have come to Christ, you get united with him. You get comfort, you get joy, you get new life. But with that comes responsibility. Look at what he says. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, essentially all the stuff you just sung about in your hymn, Philippians, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul challenges the Philippians. This can't just be something you sing about. This can't just be restricted to the content of your songs. If you have any comfort from being united with Christ, this now needs to become the shape of your lives. You need to live like him. You need to love like him. You need to lay down your lives like him. Paul challenges us to become individuals and a community shaped around the very same love and humility that Christ showed towards us. So what I want to do just in these last 15 minutes or so is just unpack what does that look like? What does it look like to be a community of humility? And of course, there is so much that we can say, and we will need to return to this theme again and again and again and again and again. This is not the last word on it at all. But I just want to draw out two thoughts that come through from this passage about what true humility is. And the first is this. Humility is an attitude. It starts up here. All the stuff that Paul says, it's about the way we think. It's about the attitudes we hold towards one another. The way we think about ourselves in relation to others and in relation to God. Paul says that has to reflect the attitude that Christ had towards us. And the message of the gospel is incredibly challenging to the way we think. Because the message of the gospel is an incredibly equalizing message. The cross is the great leveler of the world. It says that all of us are of equal value to God. Wherever we stand in the social structures of our day, it doesn't matter to God in the least. We are all equally in need of him and equally loved by him so that Christ came down that ladder, not just for some of us, but for all of us. Humility starts there by recognizing that I can't see myself as better than anyone else because I am just as in need of Christ and just as loved by him. Duke Kwong, who is a pastor from Washington, D.C., puts it like this. It's impossible to love someone you disagree with when you secretly believe they need Jesus more than you do. I think he's right. And actually, not just for people we disagree with. I'd say it's impossible to genuinely love anyone if we secretly think they need Jesus more than we do. If we think that Jesus kind of just came for those people, I, I could have got by without him. I mean, I'm grateful he came, but really like he came for those people and I'm a little bit better than them. If we think like that, that's not the value system of the kingdom. That's the value system of Rome. We need to love as Christ loved. We need humility up here. We need to genuinely understand that the cross equalizes us. We are all in need of him and we are all deeply and equally loved by him. In Galatians 3, Paul unpacks this in a similar way. Writing to the church in, in uh, Galatia, he says this, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is clever here. Just like in Philippians, where he quotes one of their hymns to make a point. Here, he is actually quoting something that people would have said regularly. You see, the early Christians and Jews would go to the synagogue to pray. And one of the prayers that they would pray every day would be this. Lord God, thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And they would pray that every day. So imagine the situation. You're sitting there in church. This letter arrives from Paul. Someone reads it and they explain it out. And you read these verses in Christ. We are all one. There's no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. You're like, wow, that's incredible. And the next day you go to the synagogue and it's like, now let's all say this jolly little prayer of Thanksgiving. And you're like, I don't think I can say that anymore. Because if you truly get the implications of the gospel, suddenly ways of thinking and speaking and value systems that you used to live by just don't work anymore. 
And if you say that, you are not living with integrity. In fact, you are doing something worse. You are rebuilding walls that Christ gave his life to tear down. And Paul is saying something similar here in Philippi. He's saying, hey, look, Christ died for all of us. You are all one. Therefore, your thinking needs to reflect not the value system of the city, but the saviour. He wants to challenge the Philippians. In your day-to-day life, do you sing these beautiful words and yet still build up walls that divide us? Do you ever live in this Philippian society where you're being preached at again and again and again about the race for honour and then bring some of that thinking into the church? If so, you are in danger of rebuilding walls Christ gave his life to tear down. Paul's challenge is this. In your thinking, do you reflect more your city or your saviour? And it's a question I think we need to grapple with. Because honestly, our society is not that different from Philippian society. I rarely wear a toga in public, but that aside, like I am constantly being confronted by the value system of our city, which is forcing, encouraging, daring us, challenging us to pursue the race for honour at the expense of others. Our city is full of ways in which it is in spoken and unspoken ways telling us that what matters most is climbing the ladder and showing everyone else how you are better than them. And we have so many status symbols around us that communicate where we are on the social ladder. Wealth, titles, relationships, positions, possessions. What's more, our whole society is often structured in a way to privilege certain groups of people and keep others low. Keep others as second-class citizens on the basis of a whole load of things like gender, race, class, income, relationship status, and so on. Our society is preaching a message to us every single day. And Paul's challenge is, what value system are you going to live by? Is your thinking going to look more like the city or the saviour? Because if we bring that value system in here, we build up walls that Christ gave his life to tear down. If we had to build a community of humility, then as individuals and as a group, we need to go through, I think, a journey of genuinely grappling with our attitudes. Do we have genuinely humble attitudes and thoughts towards and about one another? We need to come to terms with the fact that sometimes our thinking, even in a godly, wonderful place like a church, can often reflect more the value system of our city than our saviour. We need to grapple with that. We need to repent. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need to ask for the power to change so that we can live lives modeled on the love of Christ. Now, this is obviously an enormous theme and a difficult one, and I can't hope to do justice to it at all in just a few minutes. But I think it is so important that each of us as individuals, and certainly as a community and a a community of churches across the city, we need to go on a journey of genuinely developing humility up here of wrestling in a prayerful and honest way with God and saying, Lord, is there anything in my heart that reflects more the value system of our city than our saviour? And I think that's most important, perhaps, for those of us who, like me, and many of you are like me, often find ourselves in the majority positions, the positions of greatest privilege according to the value systems of our city. As a white, mid-30s, heterosexual, married, middle-class male, there are a whole load of things that I don't face in my life that are struggles that many of you will, and I can just be blissfully unaware, and those things can influence the way I think about you without me even knowing it, which is why I need to prayerfully come to God and do the hard work of saying, Lord, I don't want any of that in me. 
This is a journey I think all of us need to go on, a journey of genuine humility in our attitudes. And this is something we're going to have to talk about a lot. We're going to have to work through some difficult conversations about, I kind of don't know where to start today in these few moments that I have, but just a few suggestions. One, like pray. Bring it to God and say, honestly, God, I don't want to reconstruct walls that you tore down. So would you reveal to me, even if it's really painful, would you reveal to me ways in which my own thinking, my own attitude reflects my city more than my savior? That's a prayer he will answer. And it's a prayer that together we should be praying so that we can build a community that genuinely reflects the love of Christ. Maybe there are steps where you know you need to proactively engage with people who are different to you. Widen your friendship group. Like our friendship groups should not look like people who are identical to us. Like for one thing, that will be incredibly boring. And, and for another thing, like it's anti the gospel. Like Christ died to make us one. Therefore, I want to give my life to looking like the one that Christ made us. We need to engage with people who are different. It will enrich us, not just in a token way. It will enrich us. Like married couples, make space for single people in your lives. Don't just think, ah, oh, they are potential married people. And when they're married people, then we'll hang out with them. Like make space for difference. Because we all have things that we can contribute to one another. We are all valuable, beautiful, wonderful people made in the image of God. We all have so much to share and to benefit, and we cannot be whole unless we are genuinely whole. Engage with people who are different to you, who come from different backgrounds to you, who are in different sectors of society or areas of the city or, or whatever it happens to be. Let's build genuinely inclusive and diverse relationships. It's one of the ways that we can embody the gospel in all its fullness. And let's talk. Let's have honest conversations. Ask people who are different from us. What barriers do you experience in this community that I might not even be aware of? And what can we do to tear those down together? And maybe conversations are not quite where you're ready for right now. Maybe actually just reading and thinking about this a bit more will be helpful. I could recommend a dozen books uh, or more, I'm sure, and, and others will have different recommendations. But one that I, I've just finished reading, and you can't borrow it because I'm immediately going to reread it, is by Ben Lindsay. This We Need to Talk About Race, an absolute brilliant book. Uh, you may remember him. He was here at Love London Sunday. He's a great guy. And what's different about this to many of the other books I've read on diversity and race, this is written from a London uh, context and it just really speaks to a number of things that we face and many maybe you face that I have not known that you face up to now. It's a brilliant book and it's got loads to say on privilege and diversity and difference across the board. I'd encourage you, go on a journey of developing an attitude of humility through conversations, through educating yourself, through genuinely building Christ-like community. Humility starts there. And to be clear, I'm not saying like do this in a token way. Like, learn the things to say and not to say so that you can be woke because then woke is another status symbol in its own right. Like, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we need to go genuinely into this. And it's hard and it's difficult, but people know when we're just trying to be woke and playing at it or when we genuinely love one another. Like, we radiate authenticity when we've done the hard work of modeling our lives on Christ. Dr. Vicky Zachewski, who's the education director of Berkeley University's Greater Good Science Center, says this. When I meet someone who radiates humility, my shoulders relax, my heart beats a little more quietly, and something inside of me lets go. Why? Because I know I'm being fully seen, heard, and accepted for who I am, warts and all. A precious and rare gift that allows our protective walls to come down. I want to build a community like that. 
where people who all throughout the week just feel like they have to be in defensive mode because they're in a city that judges them comes here and feels loved and known by Christ and by his people and their guard can drop. That's the kind of community I want to build here. And if we need to do that, it needs to start with our attitudes. Humility is an attitude. But secondly, humility is an action. It doesn't just stop with what you think up here. You know, Christ didn't just look down and go, oh, well, I understand them better. I'll just think happy thoughts from heaven. He didn't just educate himself about our plight from a distance. He stepped down and experienced it for himself. He laid down his life for us. He climbed down the ladder, as it were. True humility will always be practical. John Dixon, an Australian author, writes this. Humility is social. It's not a private act of self-deprecation, banishing proud thoughts, refusing to talk about your achievements and so on. I would call this simple modesty. But humility is about redirecting of your powers, whether physical, intellectual, financial, or structural, for the sake of others. I think he's right. True humility starts here with how we think about ourselves in relation to one another and to God, but it doesn't stop there. It has to be channeled into genuine actions that benefit others. It's redirecting our energies, our resources, our privilege, our status to empowering those who the world often disempowers. That's true humility. It moves from attitude to action. And that's exactly what Christ did. And it's exactly what Paul did. You know, this is not theory for Paul. This is the very shape of his life. And it's been from day one, the very shape of the Philippian church, actually. In Acts chapter 16, Paul arrives in this Roman colony. There's no church, so he sits by a river and he's sitting there and he just starts chatting to anyone who comes by about this Jesus and people start responding and and it spirals out and the authorities feel threatened. So what do they do? They take him and Silas and they chain him up and they put him in prison. They don't even give him a trial, actually. This is what it says in Acts 16. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Imagine the shame of that. Imagine the pain of that. And then, after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So picture the scene. Paul and Silas, shamed, naked, beaten, abused, locked up in a horrible, horrible prison cell with no fair trial. They're there. And what do they do? They begin worshipping God. They sing praises to their God. I'm not sure I'd do that, to be honest, but that's what they do. And as they pray and as they praise, what happens? The chains break off, the door swings open and freedom comes. And what do they do? They get up and they run towards the door to go to get freedom. And then they look back over their shoulder and there's a jailer who's getting ready to kill himself. Why? Because he knows that letting these people go will mean death for him. It'll bring a death sentence for him. So what does Paul do? He looks back at this person and he goes back to him and he says, let me tell you about Jesus who broke off these chains. Let me lead you to faith in him. And then he says, I'm not going to run away. I'm actually going to stay here in this prison cell overnight with you to save your life. That is incredible. And so he stays there. And the next morning, what happens? The magistrates decide we've got no reason to help these guys anymore. We've beaten them a bit. That will do. And so they send the officers to Paul to say, you're free. And Paul says to the officers, no, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and they threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly. No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Why were they alarmed? 
because they had just done an illegal act of not giving them a fair trial as their Roman citizenship meant they should have deserved, beating them, stripping them, locking them up. They had acted illegally towards Paul and Cyrus, Silas. And the question that raises for me is, Paul, why didn't you say something earlier? <laughs> like, why didn't you say when he's about to beat you with a rod, hey, look, look, Roman citizen, like, you've got an ace up your sleeve, Paul. Why didn't you play that one earlier? And I think the reason is this. Because Paul understood not just here, but in his whole being, what it means to be a follower of Christ. The one who gave his life for us. The one who models his life on our saviour, not on our city. And so Paul did not consider equality with Roman citizenship something to be grasped and used for his own advantage. Rather, he laid aside something of his privileges. He walked down and took the status and the fate of the lowest of the low. He was treated like a slave. Why? in order that the love of Christ may get to the people who otherwise would not have heard that message. And Paul gave up something of his privilege in order to reach others for Christ. And because of that act of humility, not just that he thought good things about the jailer and others in the jail, but he turned that humility from attitude into action. Because of that, God raised him up and raised up from him a church who from day one, this has been their story. This has been their story. Now, I'm not saying, to be clear, that we should forego all our rights and responsibilities or that we should tolerate injustice. We absolutely shouldn't. And Paul doesn't either. Uh, there are various other times in the book of Acts where he actually claims his Roman citizenship to get himself out of certain situations. I don't know why in this moment the Spirit of God prompted him, hey, lay aside your privileges there's going to be something great that comes of it. I don't know why the Spirit prompted him to do that in this circumstance in a way he didn't elsewhere, but I do know this. The result of Paul stepping down to the lowest of the low following the example of Christ meant the elevation of a huge church in a powerful city. It meant God could do incredible things through him because of his humility. And I also know this, to be honest, like if I faced that situation, I don't think I'd act like Paul did, like Christ did. I'm not sure I would have the strength to do that unless I have learned to lay down my life in the less extreme day-to-day -day examples. It's there, it's here that we have the training ground of learning to be humble, learning to model our lives on Christ. If I can't lay my life down for you because I don't value you as Christ does, I'm never going to be willing to go to prison for the Lord. God willing, that won't happen to any of us. But my challenge is this. In the day-to-day, -day, in the way we treat one another in this church and in our society, will we reflect more the love of Christ or the value system of our city. It's in the day-to-day -day that we need to learn to practice humility in following him. Maybe the band can come back up. What starts as a beautiful reflection on a lovely worship song <laughs> suddenly just becomes really challenging for the Philippians and, and I feel for us. And I feel like, like it's heavy <laughs> right now, but this is appropriate. This is what it looks like to model your life on Christ. In his brilliant book, Dream With Me, John M. Perkins writes about the prayer of Christ in John chapter 17, which is a beautiful prayer. He prays that the church will be unified just as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit is unified. And that when that happens, the world watching on at this unified church would catch a glimpse of the love of Christ and be moved by it. And John Perkins writes about that prayer. This was Jesus' prayer for us all, yet more often than not, I fear we've not lived up to it. Instead, we fight for our own way, for our own selfish desires, for our right to be superior. 
We build churches centered on our own cultural ideas of God rather than on seeking to bring us back to him. And then we fight with other churches and religions about who is serving their personal culture's God the best. Man, God, protect us from that. Dream with me, he says. Dream of a fight for something bigger, something more important and worthwhile. We need to fight for justice and peace for the walls between us to come crashing down. My question for you is this. Are there attitudes that you hold in your heart and in your mind that honestly reflect more of the value system of our city than our Savior? And if so, do you need to bring those to God in repentance? Are there people you need to ask forgiveness from? Are there things that God is challenging you to let go of or to commit to today? What attitudes might he be highlighting in your heart that do not reflect the genuine, humble, self-giving love of Christ? And what are you going to do about them? Is there privilege, resources, opportunities, power, influence that God has given you or the city gives you for whatever reason that you can use, you can turn around and redirect towards others to empower them? Other things that God is prompting you about today. And what would it look like for us to be a community of individuals together working on this? Building unity in a world that, in a way that the world longs for but can't seem to find answers to so that we can be a witness of the genuine love of Christ to this broken and disunited world. I don't know what God is prompting you on. Maybe there are conversations you want to have. Maybe there are prayers you want to honestly utter before him in the quiet and private of your own home. Maybe there are actions you know you need to take. Maybe there are people you need to talk to. Maybe you want to come to the prayer team. Maybe you want to talk with a trusted friend today. But what we can all do, I think, right now is worship. And so that's what we're going to do. And so in a moment, I'm going to invite us to stand and we're going to sing and it's a golden oldie, but it's based on this passage. It's, it's the servant king and it celebrates what Christ has done for us and then the call to follow him. And I honestly I hear this right. Like, I don't want you singing this if you don't feel you can sing this today. I would rather you sit and reflect and think about the words than say something with your mouth that you know doesn't line up with your heart and your mind. But if you will, I'd invite you to join me in standing and singing this song as a way of saying, Jesus, I want to walk the hard road of following you, trusting that through your model of self-giving love, you can do something beautiful in this community for the good of the world.